This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. My name is Zach Lutz. For those of you who don't know me, I'm pastor here at Trinity Church. So excited to be with you all. We're starting a new sermon series today, uh, and it's going to be over the Gospel of John. So the Gospel of John is going to touch on a lot of different themes. We're going to get kind of this like thousand foot survey of basically these signs that Jesus will do to show the world. This is what John is concerned about. The signs that Jesus will do that show the world who he is. And who he is is the Son of God. Um, We're going to look at the signs, but we're also going to look at a couple of what we call these I am statements later on too. And it's where Jesus will again declare that not only is he just the Son of God as in like a little bit lesser than God himself, but he is actually God. And so he used these phrase that begins with I am. And that has some biblical significance that will attach him as deity himself, deity incarnated, deity among us, deity that would die for us. So John's gospel is really uh, quite beautiful. And here in these first 18 verses, uh, John is is interested in kind of previewing uh, some of these themes. Um, But one area that we're going to look at in particular is this theme of revelation. John is concerned about, in these first 18 verses, showing that Jesus reveals the Father to us. Jesus reveals who God is. So you guys have all put together a puzzle, right? You know, like open the box, you part all the pieces. You're trying to put together the puzzle. Well, imagine doing that without the top of the box. Like the image that shows you what the picture is supposed to look like. It would be exceptionally difficult. You might be able to get it together eventually, but it is going to be much slower without that image. Alternatively, you might think that the picture is going a certain direction and start just like mashing pieces together that don't quite fit. John's interest is to say that Jesus is the embodied image of God. Jesus reveals, shows to us what God looks like. We might say that we have these different ideas of who God is and what he is, and they're all a little bit blurry until Jesus comes and brings them all into focus, and you see Jesus. Jesus makes sense of God to us. Jesus communicates God to us. And so what we're going to see in these first 18 verses is that we're not only going to learn something about God, and we're not only going to learn something about Jesus as God, but we're also going to learn a few things about ourselves. We're going to learn that we are subjects, that we are victors, and that we are children. And for you note takers, that's going to be our three points. We are subjects, we are victors, and we are children. So I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word, the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light. 
but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. Now, maybe you've read John 1 before, these first 18 verses. Um, I'd encourage you to read it again and again and again. It's a little confusing. There's a lot of like pronouns going from he to him to he to him to he to him again. And it's like, who's talking about who? Um, And we're going to look a little bit about that today. And there's a lot that we could talk about from this passage. John's effectively using it as a prologue for his entire gospel, right? So his job here is to be like, I want to introduce to you the themes that I want to talk about for the whole next book that I'm going to write. I'm going to try to cram it all in here. I don't know like the order that he wrote it, but I would imagine that John had probably written the rest of his gospel and then went back and said, how would I summarize this? How do I put this intro on here that, that will help make sense of this? And so it's super dense. Um, super dense. There's a lot of things that we could talk about. Uh, but primarily, we're going to look at, as Jesus reveals God, what does that mean for us? And the first thing that we're going to see is that it makes us subjects. Now, this may be a common habit, um, but I tend to use tools in ways that they weren't created for. So an easy example, flathead screwdriver is not a chisel. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Neither is it like a crowbar or something to open a paint can. I also like to use flathead screwdrivers for that. Not what they're used for. I've broken many. Um, Another example uh, is a doorstop that's happened recently in our house. So, you know, here in Puerto Rico, the weather's nice, so we'll open up the windows and get the breeze through our house, but it'll tend to slam doors shut. And so we bought some doorstops, and we thought, this is going to help with the doors, but it's all tile, and the doorstops that I was used to buying, you know, just those little rubber ones that you just kind of jam in there, and they don't work. And so we had these, and the door was still slamming shut, and I'm like, man, Joaquin's probably going to lose a finger or something, so I take it, and I'm like, well, here's a solution. The hinge, you know, that the door swings on, I can just jam it in the middle there, and it'll hold the door. And the door has like a little bit of wiggle, you know, as the wind kind of blows, but it, it doesn't slam shut. So I'm like, all right, success. I've done it. Now, I'm sure that at some point I learned some physics lesson about levers and coefficient of force or something. But what happens, right, is that that wind is really strong. It's been slamming the door shut, and it gains the leverage on the doorstop and then rips the hinge off the door jam. (laughs) Although the doorstop was created to hold the door open, it wasn't being operated correctly. 
Just like the doorstop, we were created to operate in a certain way, in relation to a certain person. And we often don't. What John is going to say, and what the whole Bible is going to say, is that we were created to operate in relation to a particular king with a particular set of rules and a particular vision for the world. But what we often do is replace that king with other kings. And I would say most often for us, it's ourselves. So here's the idea. In John's prologue, he's, he's, he's got this summary going. He's being super artistic with his language. Um, but by verse 6, he intends people to know who he's talking about. By verse 6, he says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He's talking about John the Baptist, not, not himself, not John the Apostle. And he's, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light. And right then, people knew about John the Baptist in John's day because he was baptizing tons of people, calling them to repentance before Jesus really came onto the scene. He was a well-known name. People were asking him, like, are you the Messiah? People knew who he was. And so as he consistent, as John the Baptist consistently said, no, I am not the Messiah, but there's one coming after me. And if you guys remember the story, you know, Jesus comes up to be baptized and John the Baptist is like, I can't baptize you. So by verse 6, John the Apostle is intending his, his original audience or, or, or readers to understand the word that he's talking about in the first few verses, the light that he's talking about in the first few verses, is Jesus. And in case that wasn't clear enough, he'll continue so that by verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Um, for this, we can see that Jesus was the only one who was full of grace and truth. And the one who was full of grace and truth, if you kind of work backwards through the passage, was the only son from the Father. And the only son from the Father was also the one called the Word. So I know that John's being like a little playful with his words, but what he's intending you to hear is that in the beginning was Jesus. And Jesus was with God. And Jesus was God. As John proceeds to tell us how Jesus reveals God to us, the first and most important thing he's going to say to us is that Jesus is God. Here's why this is important for us. If Jesus was in the beginning, Jesus is God, because he wasn't created. He was there before creation happened. Even John will continue that he helped create everything, and without him was not anything created that was made. I mean, just like go back through this and just like read it over and over and over again. Just It's amazing. And if he created everything that was and is, everything that was and is, is his. He has a right to declare what it was made for. He has a right to declare what its end will be. He has a right to declare what it's supposed to be and live and what his kingdom is supposed to feel like. And so for us, that means that all of us were created to be subjects to a king. And in fact, whether you would like to acknowledge it or not, it just is. 
You always were subject to God, but maybe you had different ideas of who God was. But when Jesus came and was God, he declared, I am king. So much so that the New Testament could say, at the end, every knee will bow because he is king. Even death itself could say, you should not be here and spat him back out. And this means that we are subjects to his rule. And I'd just like for you to picture it this way. What's, no matter what country you live in, generally speaking, we live in a fallen world, but generally speaking, no matter what country you live in, what's the best way to operate? According to the law or breaking the law? I think that most of us would say living according to the law is by far the most productive and sensical way to live. Living against the law is not. It may be short-term productive, but eventually that's probably going to catch up with you. If the rightful king has taken the throne, then we as subjects need to live according to his rules. And here, I just I want to be real honest about what John is saying. Um, when Jesus came in flesh and blood, and stood before his disciples. What did his rule feel like? Did it feel authoritarian? Or did it feel humble? Now, don't get me mistaken. God won't be mocked. But God holds all the cards. There's no power that's challenging his power. He's defeated death. He is king. But when the king faces people, and as you read through the rest of John, and you see how Jesus interacts with people, he is compassionate and gracious, full of mercy and abounding in steadfast love. This was always true about God, but what Jesus does is he like brings it into focus on, this, on himself and says, look at me, this is, this is what your king is like. And so we don't begrudgingly subject ourselves to his rule. It's not, I mean, the, the New Testament will use the word as slaves, but slaves in relation to this kind of master is unbelievably generous. And he invites you to not continue living as if this rule didn't exist, but to live in light of it, to be subject to your king. So the first thing, as Jesus reveals God to us, is that we, re we realize that we are subjects. The next thing that we are going to see is that we are victors. Um, kids are often afraid of the dark. And adults are too. We just handle it a little bit differently, right? We just walk a little bit faster. Um, we pretend we didn't see those things move. Um, but children sometimes become paralyzed by the dark in a way where they are like overcome by the dark, you might say. The dark impedes our ability to see and our brains start imagining things that aren't there. We start thinking about movies that we watched recently where scary things happened. And even besides like scary things, one, not that long ago, I was running in Dorado super early in the morning. And it was really dark. So I'm running on this path, and I'm realizing I can't see anything. 
If I pull out my phone and I try to turn on the flashlight, you know, from the iPhone, still cannot see anything. It's not a bright light, you know? But it was overcome by the darkness. I could no longer run anymore. I had to walk because I was afraid of, like, tripping, <laughs> tripping on something. The, the light was overcome by the darkness. There's a lot of darkness in our lives that continues to foster fear among us. And I want to look at this in two aspects, the darkness without and the darkness within. So for the darkness without, there might be a variety of ways to describe this. On an individual level, uh, we experience evil done against us, a petty and narcissistic boss, a cruel family member, and the unbelievable injustice that we have sometimes in interpersonal relationships where people like accuse you of something that's not true and you just like, you can't quite fit it together. Collectively, you might say that there is darkness that looms over us that seems hopeless, that seems to overcome the light. There are sins that haunt our cultural past that we can't quite shake. There are issues in our world that are so large that no one seems to have an appropriate answer for. To make this a little bit closer to home, we as Christians often believe that like some governmental, government or societal change will somehow squash our faith, that the Christian faith will die. And so we react maybe violently or combatively, or maybe just we resign ourselves to the sidelines and we choose not to care. There's darkness without. There's also darkness Within And again, you might say that there's kind of this individual and collective angle. First, there are those sins which we just can't seem to let go. The Bible will use the words like a dog returns to its vomit. It's just beautiful imagery, right? Just beautiful. It's how we return again and again to the same sins. We know that they destroy us. We know that they hurt others around us. And yet we go back again and again and again. Not only that, but there's a surprising amount of darkness that lies within us, that lashes out at others, so much so that it legitimately surprises us. We'll have responses to people sometimes, and we'll be like, where did that come from? So we also, though, for these battles within, have these infirmities, sicknesses and illnesses, we could say. Um, and some of these are physical. Sometimes we can attribute them to evil without. Sometimes there's something that happened to us that's caused some damage that we now live with now. Sometimes we don't know where it comes from, maybe depression and anxiety, but there's this tightness of the chest, sleepless nights, panic and worry, pain and suffering, a loss of use of your body that can seem hopeless where light can't penetrate. Both the darkness within and the darkness without are darknesses that seem insurmountable. And usually the way that we get around this as a society is just to say, yeah, that's just the way that it is. That's part of becoming an adult. You just kind of suck it up and you learn to deal with it. But this is where the beauty of John's writing really shines. Look at verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
The term overcome has military overtones. That's why I'm going to say that we're victors. Because the darkness has not overrun. The darkness has not conquered. Unlike my early morning run where darkness overran my little flashlight, this light shines so brightly that all darkness will be removed. Now what's interesting is that in verse 11, John will say that this light came to his own people and the people that were supposed to recognize him the most didn't. The reflection quote in the front of your bulletin that I chose for this week comes from Plato. Now, Plato wouldn't recognize God's rule per se either. In fact, his ideas about God would be very different than our own. And nevertheless, he can say this about light and darkness. It is forgivable that children are afraid of the dark, but the real tragedy is when men are afraid of the light. The real tragedy is that the darkness without and the darkness within seem more comfortable than approaching the light. Physiologically, there's this response too. You're in dark for a long time and then a light turns on and you you like withdraw. It hurts. When the light shines on the darkness within and without, it unsettles us. We'd almost prefer not to see it. But this not only gives us hope for those things that haunt us, that we long to name, but also gives us the empowerment to run towards those things that we would prefer to keep hidden. It allows us to run towards darkness in our lives, knowing full well that he's conquered it and it's not overcome by darkness, and say, this shouldn't be here. Jesus, how are we going to solve it? Not only is the light not to be feared, but neither is the darkness. You might say before that we were lost in darkness, just like bumping around into stuff. Like there was no light in the world. And so we each just kind of held on to our own versions of reality. But now we know that there is a light that is not overcome by the darkness. We can run to it. We can personally address our own sin and wounds. Because Christ has defeated the enemy, we no longer fear what hides in the darkness. So first, we see that Jesus reveals to us that we are subjects to a king. The second, we see that Jesus is revealed as the light, and this light will not be overcome by the darkness. So the last thing that we're going to see is that Jesus reveals to us that we are children. Now, Do you guys have memories with your parents or those who raised you that like suddenly changed who they were in your mind? Like maybe the pieces were always there, but some event happened and you were like, whoa, that's who who my parent is. I understand it. My dad uh, was in IT. Um, Information technology is good with computers growing up. Uh, And he taught me and my brothers how to play this game called Age of Empires. Some of you know it. It is a real-time strategy game where you leverage economics and the gathering of resources to build towns and ultimately armies to go defeat your enemies. This is all, you know, in a video game on on the computer. So, um, internet video games technically existed in my childhood, but they didn't work very well. Um, It was difficult for it to to work, and our internet was like one step above dial-up, you know, for those of you who remember. So it's just like it didn't work. It's like something wasn't working here. Um, So my dad actually created a LAN network, which this is exciting stuff right here, right? There were like physical wires 
connecting computers like through a router that then would allow us to all play this game against each other. And he like borrowed computers from other people so that my brother, my dad, and I could all play this game against each other so that we're sitting in the same room. I was probably 13 or so, so my brother was probably 11. Um, and so we get this game set up. My brother and I are going to be on a team against my dad because he's the adult, duh. Um, and my dad proceeds to absolutely destroy us. I mean, there was no mercy. I think the game was probably over in like 35 minutes, which like this game is supposed to last longer than that, sort of. I guess if you're like professionals playing, it's probably over pretty quick. But for like normal people, it takes a long time to play. No mercy. But what happened there, because we had a good time playing, was that I realized then and there that at heart, my dad was a gamer. The pieces were like all there. Like, I had known that he had played video games in the past, but, like, the experience of this, like, somehow brought together all of these pieces, and I was like, man, my dad's a gamer. It changed the way that I related to him. My younger siblings would actually say that they had the same experience with him when he, they would play Call of Duty together on the Xbox. So he's still a gamer to this day, as, as far as I, I understand it. <clears throat> God is described as our father. And we have a lot of pieces of knowledge about him. Some are correct and some are incorrect. Some are ignorant and some need to be challenged. But Jesus is the one who makes God known. In verse 18, at the very end, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Here's how this works. Maybe you think of God as just a guy in the sky who issues rules for you to follow. And if you could just follow those rules, that you would have health, wealth, and everything you could ever dream of, because then God would just be able to give you all of these blessings. Maybe you think of God as simply your therapist, who's primarily here to help you get through this difficult life, but who, like you, doesn't really understand why there is such evil in the world. I'd invite you in either of these situations, and whatever you think about God, is to go to Jesus and see if it's true. Jesus is the image of God. He's that picture of the puzzle. He makes sense of all of the other pieces, and he lived and he walked among us. And here's what he said. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This children of God language can be difficult for some of us, but is intended to be understood as this is the best father ever. None of us have had fathers that have been this good. And how do we know how the Father treats his children? We look at what Jesus did. Because when Jesus came as the image of God, but also in the image of man, he came to live a life that we couldn't have lived. The Father could speak from heaven and say, Behold my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And the rest of the Bible will say that because of our belief and our union with Christ, we are hidden in him in such a way 
that when God looks at us, he says, behold, my children in whom I'm well pleased. He would send the son to go and rescue us. So we are no longer orphans, but we are children. We're no longer wandering in the dark, but we have a home and a place. We have a family that we call our own, a family that will not disown us or abandon us, a family that won't fail us because we've put our trust in ourselves or in how much money was over there or in how hardworking we are, but a family that's rooted in the image of God himself. So we see that we are, by Jesus' revelation of, of who God is in himself, we see that we become subjects, citizens of a new kingdom, victors, and also children. Now, I don't want you to be confused because I think sometimes we hear these things and we're like, okay, great. So all I need to do is be a, a better subject or a better citizen. Uh, I need to live in the victory of Christ, and I need to be a good son or daughter. And then I'll have that relationship with God that everybody else seems to have. I'd invite you to look at the direction of movement in these 18 verses. Jesus creates. Jesus ignites the light. Jesus carries it into the darkness. Jesus resurrects from the dead. The movement, even in these 18 verses, are always God towards you. So what I want you to understand about these three things, it's not that you do these three things and then all of a sudden you see God and you understand him and you're able to talk with him perfectly. It's actually that these three things are true because of what Jesus has done for you. It's true right now. Your responsibility is to live in light of it. And then when you live in dark of it, we don't really use that phrase, but when you, you live on the other side of it and you fail to live according to what you do, you go back to Jesus and you say, Jesus, you're my only hope. Confirm for me that I am actually a subject of your kingdom. Confirm for me that I am, I, there's actually victory. That this illness won't be forever that this looming darkness will someday fade. Jesus, confirm with me that I am a child dearly loved by God. You run to Jesus again and again, not because you can be any of these things. The only one who was, was Jesus. And he came here to say, you are mine. When God was revealed in Jesus, he stood face to face with people and he said, you are mine. This is who God is. This is who Jesus is. Would you pray with me?
Father, we are blown away by your word in these first 18 verses of John. There is so much here for us to learn. But I pray for myself and these people in this room, Lord, that Jesus would be unbelievably clear to them in your word. That the Holy Spirit would so illumine your word and apply it to their lives that they would see how Jesus changes every aspect of their life. Changes them from wandering in the dark to people who live in the light. People who can run to Jesus again and again and again to correct their own views about who you are, to be comforted by your Holy Spirit, and to see the great love with which you loved us. And I ask this in Jesus' most powerful name. Amen.